right, guys, welcome to the Business Academy podcast. Another episode today. I'm super pumped for our guest. We have from Econologics, my good friend Eric Miller joining us today, uh, author of How to Become a Financial Beast. So that's right, man. And he's going to share with you how you can become a financial beast in your business today. Uh, thank you for taking the time, my man. Yeah, good to see you. Cool. Yeah. So um, what's the uh, what's the origin story of Eric Miller and uh, Econologics? You guys have been serving hundreds of healthcare practitioners with all their financial planning needs and financial education. And maybe you can share where it all started. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, uh, it's a long story, but to make it short, you know, I came from a healthcare background. My parents were in healthcare. Uh, and I saw that, that they were very underserved when it came to financial education, financial training. And when I decided that I wanted to be a financial advisor and not a teacher and not a coach or not a police officer, you know, which is usually with the three occupations where I come from and most people yeah. go to, um, then I was like, okay, these are the people that I want to help. And I learned pretty early on that if I didn't understand their actual business and how it operated, it's very hard to give them really, really good financial advice. So as we first started our, 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 pra our practice, it was, wow, I mean, I have to understand, like, where does their profit come from? You know, how do they improve the value of their business? Because their business is their biggest investment, right, by far. And it's most underutilized for the benefit of the household. So um, we just started from there. We started with physical therapists, and then we went from veterinarians and chiropractors and to almost any kind of healthcare. Uh, practitioner now we work with um, because we understand how their business operates and how that relates to their household. That's great. So Econologics, yeah, right. Um, why why that name? There, there's there's a uh, there's a meaning behind that is. that is uh, on the surface, but also you dig deep and there's something deeper there. So we can share. Yeah, I mean, I'll just go through the derivation of the word really quickly. So the original derivation of the word economy actually means the management of a household. When you really look at it, I mean the 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 any civilization is made up of households and it's pretty important to be able to manage you know the resources of a household so yeah. that that's the original word of the of economy and then the rest of it just means the study and the skills and practices of the management of the household and that's all the word econologics means is the study of the skills and practices of the financial management of the household that makes sense there you go uh, perfect there's yeah. our english there's our english lesson for the day. so so taking the derivation taking it from its roots into 2023 yeah. serving healthcare providers and small business owners of all kinds you guys aren't just in the business of, I mean, you're helping a lot of guys with their seven and eight figure portfolios, but you have a lot of financial education you do with um, with your clients and with many of our shared clients as well. Yeah. So maybe you can talk a bit about and share with us, you know, what are some, what are, what is, what should the average small business healthcare provider be doing financially, like rudimentary, right? Whether it's building reserves, making their money work for them, kind of where do you, where do you start? If I'm a month to month yeah. guy, right? And um, where, where do you start and what are kind of the stepping stones that you help guys move towards? Well, I think the first thing is that, I mean, most people are in financial confusion and they don't even know it. And when I say conf financial confusion, you, know, you ask some basic rudimentary questions of like, yeah, how much, how much debt do you have? Mm. What are your payments on that debt? What are your interest rates? You know, do you know what your targets are for your practice? Do you know what your you know, what your facility should be doing. Do you know your make break number? And generally when I start asking all these questions, I get a lot of, hmm. Deer in the headlights. I don't know. <laughs> well, somebody else handles that, right? right? 
Which is just symptomatic of their own financial confusion. That's what I hear a lot of it. When I try to get like a really good, like what is your operational expense? Not what your P&L says, because that's what your accountant's giving you. Yeah, yeah. Operational overhead is, is can, I want to know the real number. And it's a lot of like, well, my accountant gives that to me if I ask him for it. Yeah. And it's it's a lot of, um, a, a lot of abdication to, 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 to the CPA, right? Versus mm-hmm. having full, you know, knowledge, responsibility, and control of the financial overhead and the financial potential uh, of the business. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the make break number is probably the most, uh, well, it's the most underestimated number. Mm. And when you really look at it, most people probably underestimate their make break number by about 25 to 30%. Wow. Of what it actually needs to be. Jeez. Because when I say the make break number, what do you think of? I think of, um, what it costs around your business. Yeah. Just bare minimum for me to get by yeah. just to be able to pay the bills and to hope and pray that, you know, I can pay the landlord and my overhead and, and, and my payroll this week. Right. That's not your make break number. Your make break number needs to include your reserves, your payment to yourself, your profits, um, so that you can actually expand because there's just no way you can expand a business if you don't have profit. It's, it's impossible to do. Exactly. And, and so maybe you can, uh, linger on this for a second, cause I, I've heard you talk about this before and it's so important. You know, um, there's that, there's that old idea like an organizational make only as much as it thinks it needs yeah and then so if a practice owner doesn't pay themselves or include the payment to themselves as part of what the organization thinks it needs it'll never get paid correct why is it so i mean how do you I mean, I don't know how do you structure but why is it so important to a practice owner should be paying themselves as part of that make break number. Yeah, and a lot of them pay themselves, but they pay themselves as practitioners. So you'll see a lot of people, well, a lot of practice owners will pay themselves the 50, 60, 80, 90,000 dollars as practitioners, but you know, you you know as well as I do, they have an owner responsibility, they have an executive responsibility. Where does that go? You know, why are you getting compensated for that? You're doing the function. Why don't you pay yourself for that? So these are all things that you have to kind of incorporate into the the, the system and, and the planning needs of what the organization actually needs. And the way I look at it, you know, look, um, you know, if you look at corporate America, yep. you're going to find that most of these big corporations have parent companies and they own like junior companies, subsidiary companies, sure. and they pay a management fee of generally 10% to the parent company. So I, I look at the same way your household is your parent company. The business should be providing not only what your actual work is as a practitioner, but it should be paying you because you you started this business. Right. It took a lot yeah. of risk to do that. You know, your names are on all the mortgage notes. You know, if the business gets um, audited by Medicare, you know, who's going to pay the bill? Right. You know, so you take an enormous amount of risk. So you have to make sure that that, that profit is going to the household so that you can build other income streams, have reserves, you know, protect yourself. I was having a conversation with uh, David Seagraves. Yeah. Uh, he's a good uh, good friend of ours at the Business Academy. And and it's funny, you know, he's he's built like an eight-figure network of clinics, you know, in a very short amount of time. And you hear the way he talks. He, 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 he Now, he's not a practitioner, which is probably why he, it's at times, is so good at running his business. He's a business guy. Yeah. But, um, you know, he made a point that, uh, you know, you have to... You know, you can't expand without capital. Correct. You can't grow without cash flow. And so if you're afraid to sell, you're afraid to to build a profit, or you're just not making the effort to do so or learning how to do so, that's probably more important. If you're not learning how to do that, then you're always going to be small unless you have uh, a, 
proper rainy day fund there to to take care of the business just in case you're paying yourself, but also you're you're building enough cash flow to to have capital to build something else. You know, we're not Silicon Valley. We're not getting a five million dollar you know round one yeah. seed funding for our practices. We have to build it from scratch. You know, and create our own cash flow. So, and we yeah. can't we can't depend upon government assistance. You know, every time that there's a crisis, either exactly. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. So if we're if we're so we understand the value of of building, you know, obviously excess cash. We're we're uh, we're we know our our make break. Yep. We're building a reserve fund. We are paying ourselves the proper management fee on top of you know what the the, the you're getting paid as a clinician. Okay, the practice is now moving forward. Mm-hmm. There is a, a sustainable profit. The doctor is getting closer to phase two, which is where many of our business academy clients are at. So now, uh, I guess now what? What do you look at next as when you're educating, working with with your clients? If those kind of base camps are taken care of, mm-hmm. um, and then there is excess cash, you know, uh, you know, what direction do you? What do you do with it? What do you do with it? Yeah, yeah. What do you do with it? So that's just part of a strategy. Then, so now the game is okay. Um, I'm starting. I'm starting to pull profits. I'm starting to accumulate cash. What do I do with it? I just don't want to sit at a bank earning, you know, one, two, three, four percent. Sure. It's got to be put in motion so that it can create more cash flow for the household. Because the idea is that you don't want to depend upon the business for the rest of your life as your only source of income. So now, if you can take these profits, you can start investing in in other areas, which you know include real estate. It includes, you know, typical wealth management stocks and bonds. It includes, you know, maybe other businesses, other ventures, or, or whatever it is that's like that you like to do or that you know, yeah, or you have some competency in, you know, just don't throw the money towards things that you're just like, well, you know, my Uncle Joe said this probably would be a good investment. Yeah. So, well, we'll try this. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know how hard it was to make that money. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure you understand where it's going. So that's usually the next phase after that. And as you know, as the empire grows now, it, it becomes more important to manage risk. You know, where a lot of people don't think about that. It's like, hey, you know, the bigger that you get, of course, you're going to be now subject to a tax. Right. Because that's going to happen to everybody. Yep. You know, you can start getting to a five, six, seven, eight, nine million dollar clinic. You're going to get sued. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the way of the world right now. So now it's like, how do I protect all this stuff? So you definitely go through different phases. Interesting. You know, as as things go. And of course, you're looking at like, how am I going to exit this business? Right. You know, what 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 are my what's my strategy of doing that as well? That's a good point. I think that's a lot of a lot of where the headspace is for a lot of docs is okay. Right now, I, it's like my time is exchanged for income. So the amount of time I put into my business, I get income. But but uh, a real business should be making money on its own without you having to be there. Yeah. And so we okay. So we walk forward through these steps. You've talked about obviously. Uh, uh, different opportunities to to grow wealth here um now we're talking about an exit what are what are some things that you found um and you've educated your clients on on what it what you should have in place to make to have a good well-rounded business that has the highest profitable exit well you got to look at who your buyers are you know who's going to buy the business who wants this business and in a lot of cases right now there are a lot of private equity money that's moving into the healthcare space so private equity basically is private money. Yep. They form these management groups that go out there and try to buy, you know, different kinds of healthcare practices, whether it's chiropractic, whether it's veterinarian, whether it's physical therapy, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And there are very specific things that they're looking for, you know, to be able to acquire these kinds of businesses. I'm listening. Okay. Very good. It's not <laughs> Um, they want consistency, right? So okay. if you're going to try to buy multiple practices, because all they're trying to do is 
is to grow this big ball of EBITDA or profit, right? That they can then sell to a bigger group for a bigger multiple, right? Got it. It's just a game to these guys. So if you're trying to sell your practice, or if you want to sell your practice for maximum value, and you don't have to sell to them, but I mean, this is the way of the world. It's a nice, it's a nice benchmark, whether you're selling them or not, because they know, they know if they want this, then of course it would be valuable for anybody else that's buying it too. Exactly. So I would say, number one, the business can't just be dependent upon you. So if you're the main producer, the value of the business is going to be substantially lower, right? Substantially lower, just because it's just dependent upon one person or one practitioner. So having multiple practitioners, obviously, is going to be um, important. Yeah. You know, not just you that's doing all the production. Uh, I would say making sure that you show a fairly low turnover of key personnel they're going to, because what are they buying? They're, they're buying a group of right. people that are coordinated. I mean, there's a lot of value in that. So if they see that there's a ton of turnover and, you know, that's a toxic environment and, you know, everyone's yelling at each other, then we have, number one, you'd probably get no production going out anyway. True. But uh, if they see that, that's like, okay, that's, that's a good indicator, you know, how well known is the, is the practice in the community? Mm-hmm. You know, how well have you done your promotion? Um, financially is probably the most important thing yeah. is how profitable is the business. If you're running at a 5% margin, a 10% margin, mm. the value of the business is going to be based upon your, your net profit. Right. So it's got a ton of different, you know, names that people call it, but that's really what it's going to be based upon. So they usually take a multiple of that. Okay. And that can range depending on how big you are. Right. You know, if you're four or five, you know, if you're like David, you know, the big range right there, yeah. you could get, you know, a nine or 10 multiple of your earnings. So if you're doing six or 700,000 of earnings, then you can do the math. Makes sense. Yeah. I imagine there's uh there's the, there's the value on paper, which is what you're discussing mm-hmm. there towards the ladder. But then you almost have, you almost have a bit more negotiating leeway when you have an operation that is stable, like you said, consistent, doesn't yep. rely on you and has a good team that's going to continue with them because they want it as plug and play as possible that nets a bunch and they can build it up and flip it. Yeah. Um, and even if it's for a private buyer, another another physician, the, the more they can walk into it without having to fix a bunch of stuff. Correct. The valuable it is. Valuable it is. I always compare it to like, um, you know, when you're looking at buying a home, you can buy a house that has a value in the market based on its location and based on different parts of it. But if it's a re- it needs a rehab, it needs a lot of work. Yep. And the value of the home is lower versus something you can walk into. It's ready to go and needs minimal fix-ups. Correct. I'd say another big thing too is the, is your patients. Like, are you seeing new patients? Is, is your new patients growing as opposed to going sideways or going down? Like out of who wants to buy something that's going sideways or going down? Well, they'll buy it. They just won't give you max value for it. Right. You know, so that'd be another really key, um, um, indicator right there of how well the value is going to be. That makes sense. Now you, now with that being said, you wrote a book. Yeah. Right. I did. You're now a writer. <laughs> I got, I'm, I'm next in line. I got to get the same thing done too, but you, you, you titled it, you know, becoming a financial beast. Yeah. So, um, uh, what, how do you become a, what's the first thing we all can do to become a financial beast? What's the, uh, either mindset or actionable thing that every practice owner could start doing to get more into their beast mode? When it comes to their money. Well, you know, I named that. Uh, I didn't survey it very well, but it's just I thought it was cool. Yeah. You know, I was like, well, the biggest YouTuber is Mr. Beast. That's right. You know? So it's like it's a great word. Uh, you know, what is the what is a financial beast? I think it's, you know, to me, it's someone look, 
we all complain about all the external factors out there that are affecting our wealth. And they are. I mean, yeah. we have, you know, the monetary system is crazy. The tax system is crazy. Healthcare system is crazy. You know, every, all these systems are crazy. Yeah. They're extracting wealth from everyone. But when you really look at it, 99% of the financial condition that you or me or anybody else in is an inside job. It's what we're doing. That's affecting. Yeah. So I look at, you know, financial beast is someone that simply has control over their environment, over their financial environment. And they're doing all the right things to be able to dominate and conquer at least their little sphere yeah, of influence. So it kind of starts there with like the, hey, the idea that, you know what, I can control my outcome. I think that would be the first place that it would start. Totally. It's so easy to complain about inflation at, at, six, seven, eight percent and the Fed's printing money or interest rates are going up or uh, I put my money in crypto and I've made all this money that I lost all of it yeah. or this or my, you know, uh, or Aetna or Blue Cross isn't raising reimbursements on pace with inflation, which they're never going to do. Nope. Um, or people are out of money. I mean, you could sit there and just be consumed as a victim financially with all of this stuff or even just be a victim of your own poor habits, you know, without. But but I think your point in that book and and why people should read it is this is how you can control that from the inside. Correct. Here is how you can, just like we, any of our doctors, you know, there's a thousand external factors that will impact their health, but they have to make it a priority for themselves to take care of themselves despite all that. And that's, I think, what you're doing as well. Yeah, I definitely. The most healthcare owners I've seen very much undervalue themselves. Um, and that, that cause it, because they're usually the last to get paid. You know, right. and it, which is such a mis because everyone out there thinks, oh, these greedy business owners, mm -hmm. you know, they're always the first to get paid. It's that's never been my experience. Never been my. Whenever experience. I hear like, I, I yeah. you know, I just just a rant a bit. Like whenever I hear uh, whether it's uh, a certain politician or whatever, you know, we gotta, you know, the the one top one percent need to pay their fair share, and thus this whole tax initiative needs to be implemented. That's going to impact who, right? Small business owner, right? It's like uh, there's this misconception that that. Um, Anybody that owns a company or that is part of the capitalist system is a is an evil capitalist pig, yeah. and thus you have to um, basically beat yourself down to a point where you don't have anything, so everybody else has has everything, you know. Yeah. And that's just such a and and I think that chiropractors that want to serve and help people will have the mentality at times to put the box on the front desk and pay what you can on your way out yep. kind of mentality instead of we're running a for profit business serving and helping people and we're going to get exchange for how we're to the level we're going to serve people monetarily. Especially the amount of pain that these people alleviate, mm -hmm. the, you know, the effects that they create. Yeah. I mean, because think of what happens when people are out of pain. They're nicer. <laughs> Everything changes. They're more productive. Yeah. And I just don't think people really understand the value of what happens yeah. to a community when you have, when you're serving that many people yeah. doing that. And the only way you're going to do that, it, at the at the scale that you want to is if you pay attention to your finances you really have to you cannot i mean we live in a money system i hate to say it but we do so you have to understand the subject a little bit and and make sure that you have it to expand so let me talk a bit about uh current events just for a second you know you got you know the, the fed paused interest rates they're probably gonna raise them again mm -hmm. you got you know all these reports and numbers and studies x amount of americans are living paycheck to paycheck they have studies on universal basic income, you know, pay people from the government their basic needs. And you have all these, I don't know, then you have a, you know, we're in a recession, we're not. I mean, 
there's a lot of noise out there right now. And I think we've already alluded to this to a degree in this conversation, but with all that noise, mm-hmm. how do you, what, what, what are some disciplines or habits you can start with to get in control of your financials? Yeah. Despite all this noise, right? You have the right headspace as to how to take control, but gosh, where do we start? You know, I hate to say it's so simplistic. You got to have a plan or at least a strategy and it would start with there. Yeah. And the plan would, you know, need to contain, okay, here's exactly where I'm at and here's exactly where I'd like to go. You know, and I say, you know, I, I tell the ideal scene to most people of what their finance, their financial condition should look like. You know, you do the same thing with their business, yeah. right? I just say, hey, look, you know, your household should, what should financially your household look like? Well, number one, you should have an abundance of income coming in from multiple sources. Yeah, that sounds good. You should be free of all bad debt, mm. not all debt, but all bad debt. Yeah, I'd like to have all my bad debt paid off. Um, your business should be profitable, sustainable, and valuable. Your assets should be protected from taxes, inflation, and lawsuits, and you should have time to pursue whatever life goals that you want, right? Yeah, that sounds great. That's the ideal scene. So let's now start working at what we can do to start bridging the gap between where you're at and that ideal scene. Yeah. And it doesn't need to take, you know, because I don't know where you learn about if you ever talk with other financial advisor, like, well, when you're 65 years old or 75 years old, you may be able, you may be able to have just enough to, it's like, no, you can really do this in like seven to 10 years. Yeah. If you have a viable, it starts with the viability of your practice, which I'm I'm glad when you guys do. Because you really get in there and make sure that these guys are viable and profitable. Right. Totally. So that and it's funny, one of your main things on your on your presentations and you're educating people around the country is like you gotta get production and revenue uh growth happening in your business yeah. right away. You know what I mean? Which is huge. And I, I to your point, like it not taking thirty years or twenty years or fifteen years to get there. I mean, case in point, Dr. Lisa Palmer, I mean, mm-hmm. she's a client of yours. She's been a member of the business academy for many years, has grown her business exponentially, but also has been able to create other businesses in the in, in, mm-hmm. in the interim, and then they are like, so I've sat down with them in their in their kitchen, like, and I've gone over their financials, and they follow your guys's instructions to the T yeah. on how they pay themselves, how they set themselves up for the future, and how they are literally building wealth. Because you can make, five, I mean, gosh, you, I mean, you supply it all the time. You can make five million a year as a practice and go, I made it, and then you're spending five point one, and mm-hmm. there's nothing at the end of the month or at the end of the year. To, to, to show for it besides the fact that you're playing this rat race, right? That phenomenon doesn't, it, it occurs in $500,000 practices. It occurs in $20 million businesses where every dollar is spent if you allow it. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing they did was make sure that there's someone in control of the finances. And if you have someone, one person in control of the finances that can say no when they need to, uh, and knows where to channel a dollar when it comes in. Yeah. I mean, this is really simple. You should know like we're 98% of every dollar that comes into your organization. You should know exactly where it's going to go. And uh, to your to your point, they did that. And after a while, you know, it was tough in the beginning, like it always is, right? You get a lot of resistance. You got a lot of, you find out like, okay, who's giving me the resistance to do this? Where is, you know, we call it the financial resistance wave. You get all this pushback, you know, where, where is this coming from? You know, who doesn't want me to have money? You kind of find out who they who they may be, yeah. Um, and you know, they, you weed them out, and then you know, two three years later, now you're like, wow, I have two hundred thousand dollars sitting right here, or I have five hundred thousand here, and my practice is doing really really well. So, it, you got to go through it, but once you do, 
you know, life becomes easier? That's a good question to ask. Who doesn't want me to have money? Yeah. Or who wants to take my money? Yeah. <laughs> I think of like athletes, right? Like athletes say, and, and, and I don't want to stereotype athletes, but like something, they make all this windfall of money so young. And then how many times do you hear the story of them losing it? And everybody took a piece of it. Yeah. And they got left with nothing, you know? So that's, a, I think, a really good question that anybody should ask, you know, who doesn't want me to have money or like, who's who's taking my money? There's a whole, like, probably chapter on, like, financial, I think, I don't know if I wrote a whole chapter on financial destroyers and, and what their characteristics are wow. and just the kind of people that are around you um, because you can't have parasitic people on your finance lines. Right. They will They will do you in at some point in time. If not slowly, yeah. you know, that's crazy. That's a good point. Well, I think our audience can leave with a number of uh, really good nuggets from today. Um, one thing I just, again, love about what you guys are doing at Econologics is, is you're not just telling people what to do and handling everything for them. You are educating every one of your clients in the process to be in full control. You know, and we know that, you know, with knowledge comes responsibility and better control. And uh, I'm just, uh, I, we're happy to have as many of our members in the Business Academy be a part of your program. And uh, we'll want to help a lot more do so. Um, this hope this is a, the first of many conversations, Eric. Yeah, buddy. I really appreciate your time. And yeah. uh, with that being said, I'll let you get back to it and we'll uh, we'll see you guys in another episode and be a financial beast. It's your time. Where can they find your book, by the way? Uh, you can go out to Amazon, uh, How to Become a Financial Beast. Sweet. How to Become a Financial Beast by Eric Miller of Econologics. And uh, for any more information on Econologics, they can find you at Econologics Financial Advisors. Awesome, my man. Thanks for your time. Thanks, buddy. All right, guys. We'll see you for another episode next week. Take care for now. 